0: Uh, Well, we are a few weeks into a uh, teaching series called Encountering Jesus. Prior to Easter, we looked at a few stories of uh, people who met Christ before the cross and the resurrection. And those were very transformative encounters. Uh, Then on Easter, we considered uh, two disciples who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And the wonder and the joy they experienced to meet Jesus risen. And then last week, uh, I was not here, but I caught the video... And what awesome, uh, what a great Sunday I uh, had uh, Anne-Marie Wechter and Josh Shoemaker share their stories of how they came to know Jesus Christ and how he is leading them, walking with them in life now. Uh, I love this, that our faith is not just uh, looking back a couple thousand years ago and just remembering what Jesus did in lives back then. We believe in a God who is alive today and is encountering us today, is changing us today. Uh, I just couldn't uh, say enough about how, how good those testimonies were last week, so thank you, uh, Anne-Marie, for sharing, and uh, Josh as well. are really grateful. Uh, we're going to continue uh, this morning in this series, uh, John chapter 20. We're going to consider another encounter with Jesus uh, after his resurrection. Uh, this one happens, actually, it's the first encounter with Jesus after his resurrection, so this is again on Easter Sunday morning, and we're going to consider Uh, the person of Mary Magdalene. I'm going to read in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And this will not be, uh, this scripture will not be on the screen behind me, so you can either listen along or uh, follow along in your Bible. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, John often referred to himself that way in, the, in, the, in uh, the book of John, as the other disciple, or the one whom Jesus loved, which is an interesting way to refer to yourself, but uh, John appreciated that. Uh, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they had laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Which he makes note of the fact that he beat Peter in a foot race <laughs> to the tomb. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Which another is the side. Very interesting that Jesus took time to fold his Headcloth before he left the tomb. So, any parents looking for a reason to tell your kids to make your bed, there's a really good one. If Jesus could do it when he rose, all right, you can do it too. But I digress. Uh, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and, then, and that he had said these things to her. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, how thankful we are uh, that we have the scriptures to give us this account of the risen Christ. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you have defeated the greatest enemy, death itself. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes uh, to see you uh, in the scriptures, but also how you are working in our lives. For we know that you are desiring to come into our lives in a similar way, uh, to speak to us in our place of sorrow and grief, uh, to direct our eyes or redirect our eyes, uh, Lord, uh, off of the things of this world, and Lord, onto you, uh, who is our hope in life and death. So God, I pray this morning you would do this good, redirecting work, encouraging work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, last week uh, when Anne-Marie was uh, sharing her story, uh, at one point in her testimony, she resonated uh, with the depiction of Mary Magdalene uh, that we read about here. And she made reference to the TV show uh, The Chosen and uh, the depiction of Mary Magdalene uh, in that show. And so as we head into our uh, sermon today, uh, I actually wanted to show a, a short clip um, from one of the episodes of The Chosen depicting Mary Magdalene. That would be a good way for us to kind of get our, in our heads a mental picture of this woman. And uh, the interchange you're going to see here happened uh, a couple years prior to Jesus' resurrection. It happened when Mary, shortly after she had first encountered Jesus, and the change that she had experienced. Um, and then in this clip, uh, a Pharisee, a religious leader, is interviewing her about the change that had taken place. So I think it's about a three-minute clip. Uh, so why don't you watch this, and we'll uh, take it from there.
1: It's you. It's real. Lilith. No, no, please, don't be frightened. My name is Nicodemus. I I ministered to you, Lilith. I don't answer to that name. I am Mary. I was born Mary. But you were called Lilith, yes? Please, I must go. No, no, please, Mary. I, I am desperate for your help, Mary. I'm, I'm a Pharisee. I'm visiting from Jerusalem. I'm a man of God, and I believe you have experienced a miracle, Mary. Are you really a Pharisee? Yes. I'm sorry, I wasn't, I'm not here to enforce Jewish law. So how do you know who I am? You really don't remember me at all? I burned incense? I don't remember. It's all a blur. I can't go back into that. No, no, I don't want you to. I can't even imagine. But you, you are healed. That, that much is clear. I, I just want to understand how it happened. That makes two of us. (laughs) How long after my visit did you feel the change? It wasn't anything you did. It was someone else. Someone else? He called me Mary. He said, I am his. I am redeemed. And it was so? Who did this? I don't know his name. And even if I did, I could not tell you. Why not? His time for men to know has not yet come. His time for men? He performs miracles and seeks no credit? What does he look like? Is he a member of Sanhedrin? Would you at least know him if you saw him again? (laughs) I don't know why I am sharing this with you. I... I don't understand it myself. But here is what I can tell you. I was one way. And now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. So yes, I will know him for the rest of my life. <laughs> I have to be home to prepare for Shabbat, as I'm sure you do. So, meant that you are even hosting Shabbat dinner? It will be nothing like yours, I'm sure of that. But I'm going to try. Shabbat shalom, decodimus. Shabbat shalom, Mary.
0: We're going to consider this morning uh, the character of Mary Magdalene and uh, learn from her encounter with Jesus. So who is Mary Magdalene? Uh, The scriptures give us a lot about her. She's referenced a lot in the Gospels. Uh, First thing we know about her is that she's from the town of Magdala. Uh, This town was on the western bank of the Sea of Galilee, uh, a town actually fairly close to where Jesus grew up, and near Capernaum, uh, where he had moved as he began his ministry. Uh, Magdala was a largely Gentile populated town. um, And it was also kind of had a bad reputation. So this was a place that um, not a lot of respectable Jewish people probably wanted to live. But this is where Mary was from Uh, second thing we know about her is that she was healed by jesus delivered from demonic oppression It's said in the gospels that jesus cast seven demons out of her seven indicating the greatness of the healing Um, there had been a great transformation that had happened in mary's life uh, when jesus healed her Uh, the third thing we see in the scriptures about mary um, is that she became a disciple of jesus and who helped to fund his ministry that she traveled around um, with his group. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we read about this. says, Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Shusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Fourth, we also see in the scriptures that Mary was present at Jesus' crucifixion and burial. you, You get the sense of how attached to Jesus she was, that even when the disciples are fleeing, she's not. I mean, she is there as he dies, She sees where he was laid. Uh, John 19.25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And then Mark 15.47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. I mean, she is right there in the thick of things. This is someone who is incredibly close to Jesus. And then what we're looking at this morning is that we see in the scriptures that Mary was the first witness to Jesus' resurrection. The first witness to Jesus' resurrection is Mary Magdalene. And this tells us so much about Jesus. That of all the people he could have come to first, it's Mary. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Pharisees. It's Mary. Now, this is another reason why I have great confidence in the trustworthiness of the scriptures. Uh, Back then, if you were going to write a myth, if you are going to write up something you wanted others to believe that that wasn't true, you would have never made a woman from the town of Magdala the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, At this time, women's testimony was not even allowed in the court of law. So to make Mary Magdalene the first witness to the resurrection almost goes against what you're trying to do. But not for Jesus. He wants to care for her, and he is building a whole new type of community, a community where a lot of the things of the world are turned upside down, where this woman from a disreputable town becomes one of the most significant people that we read about in the scriptures. She's the first witness to Jesus' resurrection, and her encounter with Jesus is wonderful and mysterious. Um, We know that she knew Jesus intimately, yet at this point, She doesn't recognize him immediately. Uh, On Easter, when I was talking about the the two disciples of Jesus that met him on the road to Emmaus, we saw that they didn't at first recognize Jesus either. There's something about Jesus in his resurrected state that is quite mysterious. There's both recognition, but also not recognition. And that tells us something about how Jesus comes to us, too. There's a, a mystery to how Jesus interacts with us. There are some times when it is quite obvious that God is working in our lives, and other times we are blind to it. But God is working. Jesus is alive, and he is present. Now, I want to consider uh, the conversation that Jesus has with Mary, because it's in conversation. It's as they discuss that Mary's eyes are open. And so there's something for us here today, looking into their dialogue. So I want us to consider, what did Jesus say to Mary, and what do we learn about Jesus from what he said, all right? Uh, First thing that he said uh, to Mary was the question, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Now again, I want us to stop and think. Of all the things for Jesus to say after his resurrection, these are his first words. His very first words to anybody is, why are you weeping? It's not, I did it. Um, everything's going to change now. It's not, let me, uh, once you sit down, I have a sermon for you. It's a question about her grief. A question about her sorrow. A question about her tears. I mean, what does that tell us about the heart of God? That after Jesus' resurrection, his first words are to express concern about our sorrow and suffering. Now, this is not the first time in the scriptures we see the heart of God put on display for people who are in grief, who are suffering. Let me just reference a couple here. Psalm 56, verse 8, David writes this beautiful verse about God's heart. He says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. I mean, what a picture That there is not a tear that we have shed that God doesn't know about. Everything that has troubled our hearts, he has recorded. He, He keeps a better journal than we do about our sorrows. That God knows our hurts. And what this tells us is that Jesus cares about our sorrows. He genuinely cares about our sorrows. Now if you're like me, just because I have sorrows, I'm tempted to think Jesus doesn't care. There's a a funny math that goes on in my head that I'm thinking, if I experience hardship in life, it must mean that God doesn't really care. But that couldn't be further from the truth. God does care about us in the midst of our sorrows, so much so that Isaiah 53, verse 3, tells us about the coming Messiah. It says, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Jesus cares about our sorrows enough to make them his own. He had no reason to take our sorrows on himself, but he did. Jesus cares about our sorrows. His question reveals that. Now, um, we see that Jesus, when he asks that question, one, he's revealing that he cares about our sorrows, you know, but there's something else here that is being revealed about the heart of God. Not just that he cares for us in the midst of our grief. I mean, if that was it, that'd be nice. That would be comforting. But honestly, not enough. Something else is being revealed here, and that is that Jesus wants to transform our sorrows. He wants to do more than care for our sorrows. He wants to transform them. He wants to transform our sorrow into joy. Now, if you step back and look at the whole narrative arc of the scriptures... It's a story that begins with great joy. We see God creating this world of beauty, of wonder, and how amazing it must have been to to exist in a world with no suffering, no death, no sin. This story begins with joy. And then we see the whole, the majority of the scriptures are about a broken world. And we see the sadness of the broken world. But the story ends with great joy when Jesus comes again. So it begins in joy, it ends in joy, and we're kind of stuck in the middle right now. But this is God's desire. It's our joy. Uh, Listen to these scriptures. Isaiah 25, verses 7 through 8, uh, is a prophetic picture of what would happen when Messiah comes and God's kingdom comes in full. It says, There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. Man, do we feel that. The shadow of gloom that hangs over the earth. It says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. And that Jesus, the Messiah, would dry our eyes, wipe our tears. Isaiah 51, 11, again, uh, talking about what happened because the Messiah has come. It says, those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Not temporary, everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. And then, uh, the end of the scriptures, as I I already referenced, Revelation 21.4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever that's the hope and promise of the scriptures that jesus has come not just to care for us in our sorrows but to transform our sorrows into eternal joy jesus cares for our sorrows and desires to transform them the second question that jesus asks after he asks uh, why are you crying he says whom are you seeking Why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? You see, it's really easy for us to get stuck in the first question. It's really easy to camp out in the sorrow, in the tears, in the suffering. And there's ample reason to do so. Uh, Our own lives personally, uh, what's happening in our world globally, it is really easy to get stuck in the sorrow. And Jesus has come to care for us and to transform our sorrow, but in the way we don't expect. He rarely answers our why-are-you-crying kind of questions with the answers that we are seeking. He's always redirecting us off of the why questions of life, suffering, onto the who. Who are you seeking? See, Jesus leads us from the why questions of life to the who. Just a few months before this encounter between Mary Magdalene and Jesus, Uh, Jesus had come to another small town uh, and had met another Mary and her sister Martha before another tomb. It was the tomb of their brother Lazarus. And when Jesus came and and met them, their brother Lazarus had already been in the tomb for a few days. And they're deep in grief. And if you know the story, you might remember what both Mary and Martha said to Jesus when he showed up. They said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's essentially a why question. Why didn't you come? Why did you let this happen? We've seen you heal people. We've seen you even raise the dead. I mean, if you had been here, clearly this didn't have to have happened. Why? And Jesus did not answer that question directly either. Uh, but he said to Mary and to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He answers with a, a who statement. I am The resurrection and the life. All who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And standing before Mary this day, outside of his tomb, is Jesus, who himself is the resurrection and the life. He also said about himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is always looking to redirect us in life from these why questions about suffering onto the question of who are you seeking? Who are you seeking in life? Mary, at this point, still doesn't recognize Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. Commentators differ. Some think that Mary is, you know, her, her. She's been crying so much she can't see directly. Some think Jesus just hasn't revealed himself yet. Whatever it is, Mary still doesn't recognize Jesus at this point of the story. And I do wonder if that again is a picture for us of our relationship with Christ, of how often Jesus is with us in the midst of life's difficulties and we just can't see. We just can't see. that He is there comforting, looking to transform, looking to redirect us and we struggle to see him with us. Well, Jesus doesn't wait for Mary to put it together. She doesn't, he doesn't rebuke her, chastise her. Instead, he speaks so tenderly to her. He just says her name. Mary. Mary. Now, in the Bible, a person's name is very significant. Very significant. Uh, we actually just saw this in um, the, uh, the teaching series we did recently on the Lord's Prayer. And when we look at the section, Hallowed Be Your Name, we talk of the significance of a person's name. Um, uh, Daryl Johnson wrote uh, the book that we, used, we quoted from a lot in that series. And I want to remind us what he said about the significance of names. Uh, Darrell wrote, In the biblical world, names were more than mere labels. Not only did they describe realities, they partook of, perhaps even shaped, the realities to which they referred. That is why, so, that, that is why it was so important in biblical times to know a person's name A name often stood for the personal and incommunicable character of a person. To speak someone's name, in this sense, is a way of referring to their character, personality, or reputation. To know the name of a human being is to know some essential truth about a person's character. To put it in more modern terms, a name gives us a mini personality profile. It's really interesting when you look at Mary's name. When you look at some of the Hebrew roots of her name, do you know what Mary meant in Hebrew? There's a a couple uh, facets of it. One was bitter. And one was rebellious. Bitterness and rebellion. And you know what? That had been Mary's experience. Her life had contained much bitterness. I mean, we don't get the full picture of what it was like in her season of demonic oppression. But we know it was deep darkness. There was a bitterness in her life. And we also know, um, as being a member of the sinful humanity, there's rebellion in her heart. A sense of wanting my way, not God's way. Bitterness. Rebellion. And when Jesus called her Mary... Mary knew that he knew her. He knew everything about her. He knew her darkest secrets, her greatest fears, her deepest longings. And the Bible tells us that Jesus knows each of us that way as well. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, "'You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. "'You know when I sit and when I rise.'" You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Now, on one hand, when I read that, that unnerves me a little bit. The sense of being known that completely. When I go out, when I come home, when I sit, when I rise, what I think. That God knows everything about us. But yet, when Mary heard this from Jesus, there was no sense of her pulling away, as if, I know you, and there's shame. Instead, she was drawn toward Jesus. Because not only did Jesus know Mary completely, but he accepted her fully. The bitterness of her life, the rebellion of her life, he was not speaking of. Because when Jesus went to the cross, this is what he went to the cross to do, to take our bitterness to take our rebellion, to take our shame, our sadness upon himself. And in return, he gives us his righteousness, his love, his acceptance, his joy. The cross is the great exchange where Jesus says, I know you completely, and everything about you have I covered in my love. And in return, he gives us all that we could hope for and more. This great exchange happens in the cross. Uh, Author Tim Keller uh, writes a famous quote. You probably have heard it here before, I'm guessing. Uh, I will remind you of it again if you have heard it. He says, uh, "To To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. See, what Mary learned that day and what we can learn today is that Jesus knows us completely and yet accepts us fully. You can be sure of that because of the cross. And it was at this point of hearing that she was fully known and fully loved that her eyes were open to Jesus. It's at that point that her sorrow was turned to joy. See, encountering Jesus changed Mary. Her previous experiences of bitterness and rebellion and sadness are swallowed up in love and acceptance and joy. She came to know Jesus in his goodness and his grace and the fact that Jesus had good work for her to do. Jesus intended her to be the first witness to the resurrection, first to the disciples and then, the rest of humanity. We're, we're talking about her today. I'm sure, as a young girl, she never could have imagined that her name would be spoken of for millenniums as being the first witness to the resurrection. Jesus had significant work for her to do. And Jesus wants to do something similar with each of us. Jesus is real. He is alive. He does know us, and he does love us. And he is calling to each of us. He wants to meet us in our sorrow. He wants to give us the joy that can only come from knowing him. And if you're here today and and you're not a follower of Jesus and you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, I've got a couple steps for you. First of all, um, you can do what Josh Shoemaker talked about last week. Josh talked about prior to meeting Jesus, he just started reading through the scriptures. And he discovered that these were not just words about God, they're words from God. And I suggest you start with a book like the Gospel of Mark, the story of the life of Christ. And as you read in the scriptures, ask God to meet you there. Um, Thousands upon thousands, if not millions upon millions of people have met Jesus simply by reading the scriptures. I encourage you to look at God's word even this week and ask God to open your eyes. Uh, Secondly, uh, if you're not a follower of Christ but would like to know more, if this story could be yours, I'd encourage you just talk to somebody here. Uh, Maybe it was someone that gave their testimony last week, uh, one of your friends that you know here. Just ask them about their experience with Christ. Uh, This is one of the significant ways that we experience Jesus today. It's in and through his people. And so ask someone else about their experience with Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ and you're here today, which I, I guess you are, um, I got good news for you. Um, Jesus does not stop calling to us uh, after we first come to him. Matter of fact, encountering Jesus is about our whole life with him, that we continue to learn to know him. We continue to, to learn to discern his leading in our lives. Uh, we continue to become like him as we get to know him more. It's about so, so much more than just the start of our relationship. But learning to live each day with him. So this week, simple, simple question. You ask, where is Jesus showing up in my life? Uh, Whether it is in your family relationships, in your difficulty through work, quite often it's through this pattern of in the suffering and hardships of life, quite often God's doing something, and he's looking to redirect us towards himself And as he does that, our priorities begin to be put in order and we discover the joy of walking with Jesus. Not because everything's great in our lives and perfect, but because we know the one who is perfect and the one who will make all things new one day. I want to close with uh, some words that Jesus said to his disciples uh, prior to his death and resurrection. I'll probably close them as the benediction afterwards as well. So you're going to get it twice. In John 15, chapter 9 through 11, uh, Jesus said this, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful